Welcome to the sermon podcast from Free School Court Church in Bridgend. This podcast features sermons from the Bible, which are recorded at our Sunday services each week. To find out more, please visit our website, freeschoolcourt.org.uk, or find us on social media. Well, turn with me again to the book of uh, 1 Samuel and to chapter 2. When I was younger, me and my friends used to play this game, and maybe you've played some variation of this game, and the game was this. It was called the opposite game, and the aim of the game was to always say the opposite of what you meant. Obviously, it gets quite confusing. When you meant yes, you had to say no. The opposite game. Everything is back to front. And we see something of that here in this passage in Samuel chapter 1, as we saw two weeks ago, and chapter 2 as well. Things upside down. And here we see them starting to be put back up the right way. We see the world, we see this in Hannah's prayer, the first 10 verses of chapter 2, the world being turned back to the way that it is supposed to be. This passage, this um, chapter 2, is the world being put back up the right way. Again, this is highlighted in Hannah's prayer of praise. One commentator notes that in Hannah's prayer, she rejoices not in herself, she rejoices not in her new son, but instead she rejoices in the Lord, in who he is, in what he's done for her. But she rejoices not only in her change of circumstances, but she rejoices in in social and religious and even universal revolution that is coming. We see, don't we, the the depths of her prayer of praise, just how far it reaches. We see that this is something which stretches far beyond her own immediate circumstances to a much bigger picture than that. And it really is a prayer which is beautiful. It's one which is full of joy and praise, one which is full of deep theology But it's also one that's full of contrasts, one that's full of reversals, and some of them even might be quite shocking to us. Look with me at at verses 6 and 7 and and feel the weight of what Hannah is uh, praying and how she's praising the Lord. Verses 6 and 7. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Skip on to verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We see the depths of these contrasts, the depths of these reversals that Hannah is looking for. 
just how far they reach, even to the ends of the earth, verse 10. And it might be quite shocking to us as we see this, but there's encouragement for us here as well. And I've got two things in this passage that I want to draw out, that I want us to see this evening. And the first one is something I've already mentioned. It's the contrasts that we see here in chapter 2. And these contrasts are something which flow out from chapter 1 as well. If you remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 1, or maybe if you weren't, you know the story. The story of Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Panina. Hannah having no children and Panina having many children. Panina and all the grief that she gave to Hannah, the abuse that she gave to Hannah for not having any children of her own. And the pain that that caused Hannah. We saw that contrast, didn't we? And we saw something of how that contrast was representative of what was going on in Israel at the time. There were these people who were thriving and they had no care for God or for his ways. And yet there were a faithful few. People who were struggling, who had been beaten down. And yet they were trusting in God. There were those who were proud. Panina. And those who were humble, those who were mocking Panina and those who had faith in Hannah. And we see Hannah puts this into words, doesn't she, in the prayer here, verse 5. Second half of verse 5, she says, and clearly she's talking about herself here, she who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. We see the contrast between Hannah and Panina and what they represent of what is going on in the nation of Israel at this time. And in chapter 2, we see another contrast. The focus is no longer on Hannah or Panina, but the focus switches. And now the focus is on the little boy that Hannah has given birth to, Samuel, and on Eli, the priest's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. These are the focus of chapter 2. And again, they stand in stark contrast to one another here in this chapter. And again, like Hannah and Panina, they represent a broader reality. They show us something of what is going on in the nation of Israel at this time. They show us again that while Israel leaders are far away from God, have no care for him, are doing their own thing, there is still a faithful remnant. The Lord is still at work raising up faithful people for himself. And when we think about the context of this passage, the strong language of Hannah's prayer starts to make sense, doesn't it? We imagine again the scenes. We imagine again Hannah and the pain that was caused for her by Panina's constant mocking of her. We imagine the scene, the worshippers here in this passage in chapter 2 as they come to the temple to bring their offerings to God. And we imagine the pain as the servant of the priest comes out and steals the best of their offerings so that they cannot offer it to the Lord. For the faithful few who wanted to give their best to God, what pain it would have caused them as that was ripped from them by the priests who were supposed to help them in their worship of the Lord. It's no wonder that Hannah and her fellow faithful ones were longing for change. 
It's no wonder that Hannah was happy to use such strong language as she prophetically praised the Lord and looked ahead to all that he was going to do for his people. And I asked this question before and I ask it again. Do we resonate with Hannah and her fellow faithful few as we look at the church today, as we look at the world today? Or are we comfortable with the way things are if we ourselves are doing okay? For Panina, things were okay, weren't they? She had her many children. She was happy with what she had. Eli's sons, they were laughing, weren't they? They had respectable positions. They were able to take all of the best from the people that came to give to the Lord. They were happy with the way things were. But the faithful few, they had a holy discontent with the way that things were. They were longing for change. And as we've seen, Hannah has had her son. Samuel has been born. And again, as we see in her song, her prayer of praise, things are starting to change. And this change is exemplified in the contrasts that we see in chapter 2. Let's just take a moment to dive in and see the contrast there between Samuel and Eli's two sons. And the contrast is this, one of sin versus one of service to God. Sin and service. Look with me at verse 12. Verse 12, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. And it was, as we read verse 13, it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. Verse 17, this sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. The sin of Eli's sons was great. And yet... See how that contrasts with Samuel. Verse 11, Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy, Samuel, ministered before the Lord under Eli, the priest. And verse 18, after we have that account of the sin of the sons of Eli, we're told, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. That is the garment of a priest. This boy was faithfully ministering to the people, unlike Eli's sons. And verse 21, second half of verse 21, meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. There, in the presence of the Lord. There's no doubt, is there, that while Eli's sons were there in the temple, they were not really in the presence of the Lord. It's significant, isn't it? Many of us know the story that we'll um, look to. Um, over the coming weeks where God calls Samuel. It should be no surprise to us that Samuel is the one who hears the voice of the Lord. That Eli, Eli's sons, they do not hear the voice of the Lord. 
but at that time, uh, Eli, uh, Samuel was in the presence of the Lord. And we see how sin and service, Samuel and Eli's sons, are on different trajectories to one another. Not only are they contrasting to one another, but they're actually actively on different trajectories to one another. Verse 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Samuel is on the way up. He's being faithful to the Lord and the Lord is blessing him. Verses, verses uh, 27 to 34, this is what we hear regarding the house of Eli and Eli's sons. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done in, to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. The priests should have been helping the people to worship God, serving the Lord themselves, but instead they were getting fat on that which was meant for the Lord. But the Lord is turning things upside down, or rather the Lord is turning things the right way up. Hannah's prayers and those of the faithful are being answered, and we have this promise of the Lord, verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. And as we further explore the book of Samuel, we'll see that that is fulfilled in some way. Samuel will grow up to become a great prophet of the Lord. He will install King David to be king over the people of Israel. After him will come Solomon, who will build a great temple for the Lord. Zadok, the priest, will be installed to serve the Lord's people. And we'll be told that this has been fulfilled. Peace, prosperity, the new priest all come. But is that all that this is looking towards? Is that all that this is looking towards? We live, don't we, in a culture of immediacy. We've got 
instant messaging. You can pull out your phone and message anyone wherever they are in the world and they'll get it straight away. With online shopping as well, I don't know about you, but I'm obsessed with next day delivery. If I buy something online, I want it to come straight away. I can't be waiting around for it to come. But we shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that all the prophecies and promises of God had to be fulfilled immediately or straight away in their totality. Many commentators, if you read commentaries on passages like this, will do this. They'll look ahead to Solomon and to Zadok and say, that's it. It was fulfilled completely. And of course, God's word itself tells us that it was fulfilled in some way in those people. But there's obviously got to be more to it than that. What hope could a new king, new priest, in a couple of generations' time, be to those people like Hannah at that time? We see there is more here, isn't there? Again, remember Hannah's prayer of praise and just how far-reaching that is. In verse 6, she talks about how the Lord brings death and life. Death and resurrection, new life. We see, don't we, in her prayer of praise, the, the eternality, the finality of what she's saying. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sets them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth of the Lord's, on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's obvious, isn't it, that that goes far beyond just a priest and a king that was to come in a couple of generations' time. It goes further. It goes further. Even as we see this priest promised in verse 35, we're told that they will minister before my anointed one always. There's an eternality there, isn't there, that goes beyond anything of this earth or of this life. It goes further. And we all, don't we, have within us something of that longing for um, security, for something that will last forever, that will go on, that won't fail. We have a longing for finality, for eternality. Often we find ourselves do saying, don't we, that if we can just get through this week or this month or this year, if we can just get to retirement or whatever it is, then we'll be secure. Life will be plain sailing. It's why there's such an appeal, isn't there, to those stories which end with a happily ever after. We want things to end well. We want things to last forever so that we can enjoy them. Hannah's prayer, the longings of the faithful, our own longings are fulfilled in Christ. That's the second thing that we need to see in this passage. The contrasts and then Christ, Jesus Christ. It's no accident, is it, that Luke records for us Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, which so closely echoes what Hannah herself prays in her prayer of praise here. I mentioned this before, it's no accident that Luke records Luke 2, 52, about how our own Lord Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man, which so closely echoes the language about Samuel in 
verse 26. The truth is, we see in Jesus Christ, in high definition, what Hannah was looking to in her prayer and what happened in the life of Samuel and in the life of Solomon and in the life of Zadok, the priest. Her longings for a world turned the right way up are begun in Christ and will be fulfilled fully in the future. It begins in the gospel. It begins in all that Jesus has done for his people. In the gospel, the proud are humbled. The hungry and thirsty are fed by the water and bread of life. The only way to be saved is to come to Jesus and to humble ourselves before him, to declare that we have no hope apart from him and to ask for him to save us. And this will be fully finished by Jesus in the future. When he returns, have no doubts about it, the judgment that Hannah speaks about in verses 9 and 10 will come. He will thunder from heaven. The Lord, verse 10, will judge the ends of the earth. He will bring judgment on those, the proud, those who are are not recognizing their need of him, who are not trusting in him for salvation. But those who are trusting in him will be saved. Those who recognize themselves to be hungry and empty before him will be saved, will be set on a throne as princes as Hannah declared. And at this point, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we prepared for that day? Are we prepared for his return? Have you humbled yourself before God? That is, have you recognized yourself to be a sinner? Have you cried out to him for mercy? Have you trusted in Jesus, all that he is? all that he's done. We need to humble ourselves. That is, we need to recognize our need of him and trust in him. Repent, turn from sin and turn to Jesus. And if we do that, we know that he will not show his strength against us. He will not punish us. No, he will save us and treasure us. As this morning, allow me to quote Richard Sibbs. He says this, he will not show his strength against those who prostrate themselves before him. That is, God opposes the proud, opposes those who reject him, even though he's given them life. But he is merciful and gracious and tender towards those who recognize their need of him. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The Lord is close to the poor in spirit. It's true, isn't it? He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He saves the humble as they recognize their need of him. And this is how we ensure that we're on the right side of these things, the right side of this contrast. How different are the dealings of God with Hannah compared with those of Eli's sons? Think how Hannah was as she came into the temple. What was she doing in the temple or in the, before the tabernacle? She was pouring out her soul to the Lord recognizing that she could do nothing apart from him, asking that he, uh, he would be gracious and merciful to her. What were Eli's sons doing in the same place? Well, they were abusing the women who were serving in the temple. They were stealing what the people had brought to give to God. How different 
God's dealings with those two people are. And we must ask ourselves, which side of these things are we on? We might think ourselves to be good people, but if we feel no need of Jesus, then we are on the wrong side of things. And I wonder, as Christians, are we longing for Jesus' return? Are we longing for this to be fully fulfilled? And are we longing that he would be at work in our world in the meantime? Are we longing that he would use us like he used Samuel to be um, a means of good and a means of grace in the world? We have to ask ourselves as well, what track are we on? What trajectory are we on? Are we on the trajectory of Samuel, serving the Lord, growing in our faith? Or are we on the trajectory of Eli's sons, stuck in sin and sliding away from God, sliding towards judgment? Friends, if you want to grow, then read the Bible, pray, ask friends in the church to get alongside you and help you. Read the Bible together. Let's go on in our faith together. The Christian life is like rolling a ball up a hill. The second it stops, it starts rolling back away. Or I wouldn't advise this, but maybe think of it like running up an escalator that's going down. The second that you stop, you start going down. If we're not moving towards God in our faith, then we will find ourselves slipping away from him. If we are not making progress, we are slipping away. And by not making progress, I mean, are we forsaking the means of grace? Do we find ourselves not wanting to come to church? Do we find ourselves not wanting to read our Bible? Do we find ourselves not wanting to pray? If we do, then we are in danger of sliding away from him. But let's draw close to him. Find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. It's a challenge, isn't it, to live between all of this begun in Christ and the day when it will one day be fulfilled when he returns. And we see so much of this passage in our own society, don't we? As we look at society around us, we see a world where the rich seem to get richer and the poor struggle on. We see a world where those who are supposed to protect and serve are abusing people that they're supposed to be protecting. And even in the church, we see this, don't we? People called to shepherd the people of God turn out to be bullies and abusers. And we see here, don't we, that judgment starts in the house of God. We see the truth of that in this passage. So let's work and pray. And let's know that God will turn things around in his timing. There are applications here for those of us who are in church leadership. We must not lead like Eli's sons, stealing from the people, doing things for their own ends, for their own gain. Rather, Christian leaders must lead like Christ. Committed fiercely to the truth, yes, but leading gently. Not preying on the sheep, but shepherding. Not seeking to build a platform or build a church by taking advantage of weak and vulnerable people, but by serving selflessly the people of God. And it's our role as church members, isn't it, and as Christians, to live out God's heart for the world. And that starts in a spiritual way, doesn't it, by um, preaching the gospel of grace alone, preaching the need for all of us to humble ourselves before God and ask for mercy and grace. And likewise, we have to live for the Lord in all areas of life, 
And that means seeking to see social as well as religious progress as we seek to live in conformity to Christ. That means seeking to meet people's physical needs, seeking to serve the poor and the needy in any way we can, while all the time remembering that the spiritual need is the greater one. And there are applications here even for parenting, aren't there? Notice how Eli was rebuked. Even though it was his sons that were the sinners, it was Eli who was rebuked first and foremost, wasn't it, for his failure to control his sons. He was benefiting from what they were doing. And so the Lord rebuked Eli. We are to control our children when we can. Obviously, that's easier said than done, isn't it? And there are many of us probably now thinking about the failures that we've made as parents over the years. But there is much mercy and grace here. And the greatest need here is to pray, isn't it? To pray that the Lord would intervene in the lives of our children, in the lives of our church. That's exactly what Hannah did, wasn't it? Recognizing the situation, what did she do? She turned to prayer. She came before the Lord and poured out her soul in prayer. Why? Because this is the Lord's work, ultimately. She recognized she was completely unable to do anything on herself, on her own. And her prayer of praise is one directed to the Lord. In her prayer, time and time again, she names the Lord as she praises him because it's him who has um, remembered her, has heard her prayer, and has acted on her behalf. So let's likewise get on our knees and pray that God would bring revival by his spirit in our hearts in our churches and that that would spill over so that it affects society around us in some way and in some small way might we turn the world upside down which is in fact the right way up till he returns and it's completed once and for all let's pray